Welcome back to another edition of the Little Big Med Podcast, where we talk about little patients, but big medicine. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Today's interview is with Lala Bajaj, who's a longtime friend and mentor of mine. He's a colleague of mine, and he also is just one of the most entertaining human beings that I know of. So selfishly, I wanted to make sure I got him on this podcast early on. And we're talking today about something that we do here at our shop that isn't quite as common across the country, and that is home oxygen for bronchiolitists from the emergency room. All right, let's jump right into this interview. So I, I do specifically want to talk about bronchiolitis in the setting of something that we do that I think lots of other folks know that we do here, but haven't really adopted and sometimes think we're a little bit crazy. And so that is the, the home oxygen for, for bronchiolitis. So setting the stage for this, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, pulse oximetry itself has been both a good and a bad thing. And in particular with bronchiolitis, it's caused some problems. When you look at overall data, we noticed that the admission rates for bronchiolitis were skyrocketing sort of mid-80s into the 90s. And I think from everybody's standpoint, the real tipping point was the ubiquity of using pulse oximetry to make decisions about what we thought was hospitalization criteria. And everybody started to sort of create their own cutoffs for what they thought hypoxia meant based on what they were comfortable with in terms of traditional admission criteria around pneumonia and other respiratory diseases. So we saw this identification of children who likely weren't going to be identified as needing hospitalization for other issues like hydration or distress prior to the advent of the pulse oximeter. We do have some recent data about pulse oximetry. So one of the studies I want to chat about is one of my favorite study designs ever that I'm not sure we could ever actually get past here. Um, <laughs> it was the yeah. Canadian folks, the primary author on this is Suzanne Shu, JAMA 2014, where they got the ability to artificially adjust the readout on the pulse oximeter. So they randomized patients into kids who would display the correct value and then a subset who would display a value artificially three points higher than it was actually measured and then looked at what that did to provider decisions. Just to summarize, they cut the admission rate (laughs) basically in half for bronchiolitis by just showing a number that was three points higher. I didn't change anything else about the no. clinical exam and then followed those kids. And they, they had very similar rates of unscheduled visits and, and readmissions. So really showing that the number drives our decision to admit, but it doesn't really change what happens with these kids. Interestingly enough, when you look at why she picked three points, it's pretty much the margin of error of the machine itself. And to demonstrate the way she did in an actual, as close to a real life scenario as you could, that that one number is a significant driver of hospital admission, which we all somewhat knew anecdotally, but to demonstrate that I thought was really amazing. You can debate the ethics. And I think the second study, the Principi study also, I think even pushes that barrier even further. The Principi study that you're talking about is also similar group of authors and they sent patients who were being discharged home with bronchiolitis from the ER home with a pulse oximeter that didn't show any readout. It was just silently recording data. And then they looked at it after the, afterwards. And the numbers on this are insane to me. Two thirds of kids had a significant DSAT while they were being monitored. A large number of those below 70%, which I feel like if that happens in the hospital, we all freak out and they get put on high <laughs> flow and, you know, but, but it's happening at home. And again, those patients did not show in 
increased rates of unscheduled visits or recurrent admissions b- because of that desaturation. So, you know, when we're measuring it in the ER, we're probably just catching something that's going to happen at home anyway. Yeah, it's, I think it goes both ways. You know, we catch a, a patient that meets our hypoxia cutoff for that trend, that period of time. We assume that that's what that patient is doing. And we should hospitalize them, therefore. And then when we see a patient who doesn't meet our criteria for hospitalization by a pulse oximetry, we sort of know that we're sending them home and they'll likely have periods of desaturation, but we aren't the ones then seeing it. And I agree with you. Some of these events that they described certainly would have prompted quite a bit of intervention, you know? And lo and behold, these kids seem to be doing okay. Yeah, I feel like this happens all the time in the ER. You get a call that somebody had a significant DSAT, and it's a kid who's sitting up chatting with you in the room, and you're like, the number cannot be correct, so let's reassess this. Yeah, and even if the number's correct, it may not actually be something that we need to immediately correct in order to improve their outcome or to prevent them from going to an ICU. And people would go to the ICU in some of those patients that were at home with those readings. So, I mean, across all of the studies, the return visits to the ER are somewhere in the vicinity of 5% of all of these kids with, with nothing that we do really changing that amount. So no. I, you know, I do think you got to be aware that there's a chunk of these kids that no matter what you do, they're going to end up back and in the hospital, but you're not going to admit them right when you see them just for that possibility. We're talking about otherwise healthy infants. And these aren't the ex-premies. These aren't the congenital heart disease patients. These are term babies with bronchiolitis. And we have always been cognizant of up to a two to three months of age is still a vulnerable time. And those patients probably do deserve extra attention. But once you get into that three to 12-month period, you're starting to really be able to manage them without really much of any interventions besides suction and oxygen. All right. Well, let's hit on something that might actually get these kids out of your ER a little bit higher rates, and that's home oxygen. And I remember showing up here for residency and telling my colleagues across the country like what I was learning uh, (laughs) in Denver, and they all thought that I was insane. Like, how can you possibly send a kid home from the ER with an oxygen tank? To my knowledge, you were the primary author on the first paper that came out examining the safety and feasibility of this. Yeah, and I'm not going to take full credit on this project. It's an interesting evolution. The Practice of sending babies home from the NICU with oxygen here actually prompted the primary care providers in our community to actually start doing it from their offices with kids with hypoxic bronchiolitis. And then if they showed up at the ER, they were routinely getting admitted for days. And one of my former colleagues, Carol Turner, was working with both Kaiser and some primary care docs. And she brought me in to say, look, we're going to randomize these patients and I was sort of, well, what are we planning to do? I was, you know, it's not, it wasn't the easiest thing to, to swallow right off the bat. She said, look, you know, the IRB thinks if we can hospitalize half of them and put the other half on home oxygen and follow them pretty routinely, that's probably a good first step. We, we ran out of gas with enrollments because people started to actually really want to do it from the ED. We were backing up. We were getting, as always, a lot of borders. And this, by the time they were going upstairs, they were already 18 to 24 hours into their watch and they were going home on oxygen. So we decided then to sort of implement it as a care pathway. And we actually blew the doors off the DME companies the first season because we were doing it so much (laughs) that they called and they were like, what are you guys up to? This is crazy. And so... 
we actually worked with them on a, the right cylinder to get people 12 hours of oxygen from the ED at a half liter or less. And that was giving them enough time to get to the house, set up the rest of their oxygen. So can you describe the protocol? How do we get to the point of sending this, these kids home with oxygen? So, you know, our list of criteria around age, which is now at three to 24 months, they have to be termed or have reached post-corrected at dates where people are comfortable with their status. We try to discourage smoke around them, but it is a, that's a real challenge. But we don't have super high rates in Colorado. And then we decided to put them in observation for eight hours and say, let's try to catch you asleep, feeding. Make sure your suctioning requirements aren't every 15 minutes, which some of these kids can be. And that everybody's comfortable. That includes the family, the patients, and the providers. We used to call a lot of PCPs, but now that it's become really commonplace, yeah, they just they're expecting it. it. And I feel like I always struggle when I'm trying to teach the residents about like, why do we observe them? We talk about potential non-utility of pulse oximetry. Like, why are we making them stay in the ER for eight hours? And, and for me, the biggest benefit is it gives the caregivers time in a setting where there's other people to help out with how do we manage this oxygen cannula, making sure that they can see that their kid feeds fine with it in and that they can sleep fine and, and, and that they're happy with it. And so it's less for me about watching you, the pulse ox. I think you nailed it. I think this is about working with families for comfort, identifying when they're not comfortable. Because sending families home in this scenario and they're not comfortable, they're going to come back. We now, on average, are 200 to 250 kids a year go home on oxygen. No difference in bounce back rates between if you go versus you don't. And so that first paper got put out way back in the dark ages of mm. 2006. We do have a couple of newer ones that have come out. Mm. And I want to touch a little bit on your feelings on some of these. My biggest question when they first started telling me about this was, how in the world is there a primary care doc who is going to be comfortable seeing this kid comes in on oxygen and then in just a, a visit decides whether they need to keep doing it or stop? Yeah, a lot of people come to us and say, what is the best way to wean kids off oxygen? And in the hospital, we have a pathway that really focuses on distress and doing spot checks. Now, in reality, those machines are on a lot. We really try to encourage spot checks. But the providers themselves in this community have probably a, a level of comfort with oxygen that other communities may not have, unless you do live at altitude and have a lot more kids on oxygen. Now, you know, the argument's always been, well, you can do that at your altitude because they're, they're not as sick. And, and I honestly don't know the answer to that question. But I think we would all agree that there's plenty of patients out there that we hospitalize don't do much for, except give them oxygen. So what the primary care docs often do in the community is they will bring them in, they will look at them and sometimes put them on a pulse ox for a while and see how they do, turn it down. While others have told me that they can do this over the phone and they can say, look, why don't you turn it down to a quarter liter? I'll give you a call in a couple hours. Or if there's really no distress, why don't you leave it on there for a day and tomorrow we'll turn it off and kind of see how he does. So there is no pulse oximetry being used. Right. There's, there's purely clinical exam and, you know, working with the families. So we've resisted trying to be rigid about this because the more and more we understand the data, this isn't something that lends itself always to a rigid protocol. Yeah. And just to give you all an idea of how common it is out here, Julia Fusak Freeman, who, who we also work with, put out a paper just this year that was a survey of primary care docs from Colorado and Utah. She got about 200 responses back and more than 90% of them uh, as primary care providers reported that they see patients who get sent home on oxygen, not necessarily from the ER, could be from the floor or mm -hmm. from the hospital, and they feel comfortable 
comfortable with providing the weaning. And they all do it a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Some use pulse oximetry, some don't, but it's just become an accepted thing. One of the biggest issues that I think people struggle with is, is how do you deal with families who don't have a lot of resources? We haven't found any differences over the years in return rates, et cetera, deterioration around that. But in places where they have a very high volume of patients with limited resources, I can see the hesitancy. At the same time, I wonder what the other impacts are when you put them in the hospital and people can't go to work. They struggle with what do they do with their other kids? I don't know if we're always making those decisions in uh, in the right way because we're making those judgments on what they can. Handle. The really interesting thing in one of her other papers this year that I wanted to talk about, too, was well, how do daycares feel about this? Yeah. Right. So you can send them home. And as long as they're home with the parents, that's fine. But what about being able to reduce the amount of missed days of work that parents have to have? Can they still go to daycare? Julie wanted to do in a really unique way around looking at it prospectively and had the wherewithal to actually think about the daycare question. You know, we found that daycares were very accepting that those kids could come on oxygen. And Julia was actually having her baby and I presented that data at PAS a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and there were gasps. I mean, honestly, you would have thought I had sacrilege. Oh my God. You not only you're sending them on oxygen, then they're going to daycare and you're sending these sick kids into a place. I remember a particular question, which was really quite interesting, which was, aren't you worried that those kids are going to get the other kids at daycare sick? And I thought, have you ever been to a daycare in the wintertime? <laughs> it is just a snot factory. That's I mean, exactly where they picked it up. That's where the they got place. it. That's probably the best place for them, right? It's <laughs> to just cohort them in that. It was. Sometimes I feel like ER docs and daycare providers are locked in a mortal battle Absolutely. about what stays there and what doesn't. And so I right. love that. And in her study, a little bit over a third of yeah. kids who previously were regularly attending daycare went to daycare while they had oxygen on. So a lot of those places are comfy with home oxygen, but the moment there's even a question (laughs) of a fever or some eye redness, they are, they are gone. All right. So I do want to acknowledge here that Alala and I talk about this a little irreverently. And some of that is just because of our relationship. And some of it's because ingrained in the culture here is really trying to minimize the amount of interventions most of these otherwise normal bronchiolytic babies have during the winter. I expect that there's a large number of people listening to this who think here's a pair of academic ivory tower ER docs and they're talking to us about this protocol that there's no chance anywhere else could implement. And it does take some doing. It needs a lot of administrative support. It needs some support from your DME companies. And you've got to have somewhere for these children to go to be weaned off their oxygen. But the process here also started from nothing. And it took a while to have the community of physicians see these patients and to get the parents on board with being able to go home with something that previously reserved for the hospital. But it's definitely doable. And so we wanted to put out there some of the things that you might think about if you were having to get this thing off the ground. And that's what we wrap the podcast up with. We have had the luxury of respiratory therapy taking ownership in our emergency department of taking the order we generate and then taking it from there administratively, faxing to the DME companies, getting authorization, setting up the portable oxygen and 
and getting people comfortable with it and getting them home. And so it is administratively a challenge to organize all that. And you really have to get everybody on uh, on the same page and know the capacity of the DME companies to actually provide it. The other driver, I think, is to debulk the emergency department. And if you're able to do that, your flow and your ability to then get the sicker kids who need to be in the hospital in beds really goes up. If you're in a payer environment that's actually incenting you to manage patients in a way that provides high quality outcomes but rewards you for not admitting everybody, you can probably get a jump start on setting it up. If you still get paid to at a pretty good click to keep people in the hospital, it's a little harder to push. You touched a little bit earlier too on one of the components of whether you can send a kid home on oxygen is the family and the yeah. parental comfort, which I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about today because it's really not just a checklist of are they the right age and on a half liter or less and have they been watched for eight hours and do they not need suctioning? You're sending them into an environment where there's not generally a, a medically trained care provider who's got to deal with this piece of equipment that sounds kind of scary, right? Like every time you see oxygen tubing on TV, it's always in somebody who's just about dying. Right. So it's just visually can be a little bit scary. And sometimes the kids cry a little bit because they've got this extra thing in their nose that they don't like. And so how do you how do you approach that? And this could apply to, to just about everywhere else in emergency medicine where you got to meet the family where they're at. One of the reasons I started down this road was it was really hard for me to watch all the evidence grow. And then people still do everything, right? We're still, we were still throwing all the drugs out there, and, but we knew they probably didn't do anything. So then it became as evolution for me around, I'll be the zealous evidence-based medicine practitioner. You, you start to come up against the reality of situations which require different strategies for different folks. You know, we can still feel pretty comfortable avoiding albuterol and steroids and all those things. But in this setting, if there is a significant component of I'm really just not sure I feel comfortable going home, then you have to really weigh that in the consideration of the case. I think it's really hard to say, I know you're not comfortable, but he meets all the criteria and you can go. Uh, and the same is for a lot of what we do, which we know we, we probably shouldn't be doing certain tests in low-risk patients, but sometimes we do because we're balancing what the family is going to feel comfortable going home with, sleeping at night, with the cost and the risks. So I, I have started to really want to be a more pragmatic evidence-assisted practitioner that really says, look, here's what I know from research, but research doesn't always mean your kid. I love this idea. And I think it's one of the harder things when you're starting out in training to get, you'd really like there to be one answer and it mm -hmm. applies in, in all these cases. And it doesn't work that way, both because the patients are a little different, but also because the family and the caregiver are a little different. As you practice in the emergency department, don't get too locked in on, on one way of doing things all the time. I think that's the danger we have is we want to do this in a really evidence-based way, but sometimes you have to just see the whole picture. And that's where we leave it. There are a ton of other things to talk about with bronchiolitis in kids, and I know it's not the most exciting illness in the world, but we see a ton of it every winter. And one of the things that is a hill that I will die on is minimizing interventions for these patients. Thanks for listening once again. This has been Dr. Jason Woods with the Little Big Med podcast, talking about little patients but big medicine. You can find me at jwoodsmd on Twitter, littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail, or www.littlebigmed.com. And please, if you can take some time, go out and leave me a five-star iTunes review. It helps others find the program, as well as gives me feedback on what I can improve for you. 
This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 